Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week we're going over UFC Fight Island 3, which is headlined by a banger of a middleweight fight between Robert Whitaker and Darren Till. Very excited for this fight. Very excited to see the Reaper come back. Uh, you know, there were a couple of fights that he was scheduled for that he had to pull out of. Uh, Jared Cannonier being one of them. And I feel like this Darren Till fight is slightly more uh, suited for him. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much he would have been able to handle the power of Jared Cannonier, But in this fight against Darren Till, it's, it's, it's a very winnable fight. It's a very good fight. Uh, it's currently lined around a pick'em, uh, which makes it even more interesting from a betting perspective. Uh, and I can't wait to get, in, get into to that matchup for you guys there are a couple other good fights sprinkled out throughout the card we got shogun hua versus minotaur nogera three um why they're putting that fight together no fucking clue um but uh you know we got gustison making his heavyweight debut which is very fun we just don't know what mental uh capacity we're going to get gustison in considering this is him coming back from his retirement uh and then a bunch of other great fights sprinkled out throughout the card carlos Barza versus michelle rodriguez um you know, Hamza Chimaev making a quick turnaround uh, to impress us once again. Um, and Tanner Bozer versus Hafiel Paisoa. Uh, Movzar Evlov versus Mike Grundy. That fight's getting a lot of coverage in terms of the betting perspective because a lot of people are high on Mike Grundy. Stay tuned to find out how I feel about that. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of fun fights. And even Paul Craig against Gadzimoreta and Gulov Fun, fun fight. You know, it, I don't believe it's going to last that long. But I do believe that it will... Um, uh, it will definitely produce fireworks and should be fun for as long as it lasts. But before we get into UFC Fight Island 3, let's go over my last event, which was a slight profitable night at UFC Fight Island 2. Uh, and, and let's just quickly go over it. Um, we'll start off with the one loss, which was one of my lock of the night plays. This was a lock of the night play I made within an hour or two from the card starting just because I saw it get into a more bettable range. I got Joseph Duffy five units at minus 284 and running everything on tape. You know, I kind of, um, I kind of took away the last fight from Joseph Duffy just due to, you know, hearing him in interviews talking about how he had lingering injuries going into that fight and it was just really distracting him from the fight and Mark Casey, high level fighter so I can't really fault him too much for that but uh pretty much in every aspect of this fight I thought that Duffy had a really good shot to win this fight you know on the on the feet on the ground Joel Alvarez obviously had skills off of his back and on the ground but I thought that Duffy was going to be able to pretty much blow him out of the water there uh and then off of a sloppy takedown we get a guillotine victory for Joel Alvarez so that one was very uh deflating that was uh really tough to watch but the rest of the card was a winner you know what I mean if I just stuck with the three plays that I made before that Duffy bet it would have been a very very f- uh, good night of profit but uh you know, we only end up plus 0.09 units on the card, but let's quickly go over those last three bets. Uh, 0.75 unit dog of the night play on Brett Johns, plus 185, ton of value there. You know, we always see, we've seen Maltel Jackson uh, struggle in the past with strong ra- grapplers and wrestlers, Ricky Simone being one of them, and Brett Johns just has that crazy pace where he's not going to let you, let you off the hook, and it definitely showed in this fight against Jackson. I think Jackson has a ton of potential, but he still has a ton of work to do in terms of his uh, takedown defense and and just grappling defense in general. Also, we had uh, 1.2 units on Ariane Lipsky at minus 112 over Luana Carolina. A lot of people were just shitting on Lipsky and just thinking that she's done, she's washed. You know, she came into the UFC and really underperformed compared to what we expected her to do when she came into the UFC. And Luana Carolina, in my opinion, is just not at that level. She's not a good fighter. You know, she's going out there and beating Priscilla Cashware in a decision fight. And, uh, you know, she just didn't even look that good. It's just 
Casuara being a mobile punching bag. So I didn't really see what people were seeing in Carolina there. Cashed on uh, Lipsky plus 1.07 units. And then lastly, uh, the actual lock of the night played that I should just stuck with under four and a half units on the main event, Figueredo versus Benavides. Figueredo makes it look easy. Just goes out there, absolutely steamrolls Benavides in that first round. And we cashed that minus 190 for plus 2.63 units. And again, plus 0.09 units on the event. I wish it was plus 5.09 units, but I had to take that shot on Duffy because he got into bettable range. I learned my lesson there, though. All right. Um, before we get into the breakdowns for this Fight Island 3 card, just remember you guys can get these breakdowns earlier as I record them. I dropped them on my Patreon. So if you guys want to go support your boy, I'm easy. $5 a month gets you, gets you these breakdowns way before the public. You guys get all my official plays too whenever I'm charging the public as well too. Uh, you guys get a Best Bets article that lays out every single best bet for every single fight as well as the best prop bet for every fight too. That's something I'm adding starting this week. Um, I feel like it could be very useful and I know a lot of you have access to those uh, like specific props uh, that you know have good good return if you take a little bit of a stab on them so um yeah th there's a ton on the patreon that you guys are going to get um and some other things that i'm looking to add there as well because that that's slowly starting to grow i'm kind of surprised at how much people are actually enjoying the early breakdowns um so yeah check out the patreon i have everything in the description below and it will be very greatly appreciated you know the the best thing you guys can do for me is hit subscribe on these on this channel and then the second best thing is just to support your boy through patreon so i can do this on a more of a, a full-time basis that's what i'm trying to aim towards that's what i'm trying to work towards i feel like my breakdowns are very helpful and very insightful and even though sometimes i pick the wrong spots in terms of betting more often than not the the other fights that i don't end up betting on have very good read i have a very good read on them and a very good take on them and it's been very helpful which is why you know the numbers on the patreon are slowly starting to grow so i'm expecting to get that a little bit bigger and uh yeah uh, again i'm very very grateful for everybody that's signing up for the patreon and checking it out um yeah it, it makes all this work worth it all right let's get into these breakdowns um uh, and i hope you guys enjoy them Nathaniel Wood versus John Castaneda. We got minus 525 on the prospect and plus 415 on Castaneda. Let's start off with Nathaniel Wood. He's coming off his first, I believe it's his first, yeah, his first UFC loss, which snapped a pretty lengthy two, four, six, eight win fight streak. Um, but, uh, you know, the loss comes to the hands of a UFC vet in John Dodson, who is just a quicker and faster puncher and uh and uh, a more powerful puncher as well too. Uh, Dodson, as as old as he is, or as much experience as he's accrued in the UFC, and people thinking he's on a decline, uh, he can still have impressive performances against guys that have you know striking defense uh, difficulties, guys that are easier to hit. Um, and then when you you know mix that with the extra power that Dodson is able to produce, um, it's usually a bad night for most of his opponents. Um, but yeah, Nathaniel Wood was able to get it done within uh, 16 seconds of that third round, uh, and that set Wood back slightly. But here he is coming in again against a UFC newcomer. Um, I think it's more so just him trying to get a fight in. Um, obviously, with this whole COVID thing going on, uh, you know, he was actually supposed to fight Umer Nurmagomedov, which was a very, very difficult fight. And you guys, you got to kind of applaud him for, you know, taking his first loss in the UFC and then going in and fighting a killer like Umer uh, Nurmagomedov. Luckily for him, Umer pulls out in steps John Castaneda, who, in my opinion, uh, is kind of tailor-made for um, a guy like Nathaniel Wood. 
John Castaneda has a ton of experience just as much as Nathaniel Wood, but uh, he's a little bit more hittable. You know, he he seems to relax a little bit when he's uh, being pressured, uh, at least in terms of like moving back uh, towards the cage. And that really opens up a lot of the shots for Nathaniel Wood, in my opinion. I think Wood is just better overall. You know, he's the more technical striker. He moves better. He's going to be slightly longer, um, you know. A, uh, a ton more of a, a top level experience or a higher level experience, I should say, for cast for Wood. Um, but yeah, like uh, I don't see anything special from John, and he's very hittable. Um, you know, doesn't have the best striking defense. Nathaniel Wood is very versatile with his strikes. He throws a variety of strikes, uh, and I think that's going to be a little bit too much for John here. However, at minus five twenty five, I got to pass on this. You know. Uh, like I said, even though you have to applaud Nathaniel Wood for taking the Umer fight uh, after his first UFC loss, you still got to con- consider what kind of mind frame he's going to be coming in. Is he going to be coming in for like, you know, revenge in terms of just trying to get back in there and trying to get a W and, and kind of putting himself in harm's way? Or is he going to be methodical and tactical about it, which is kind of what got him to the dance first and foremost? Um, I expect it to be the latter, but... Um, you don't know what to expect. And minus 525, I'm not willing to pay that type of juice to find out. Um, even in a parlay, I don't think it adds enough value that you should really worry about Nathaniel Wood here uh, coming in and, and, and possibly shitting the bed. So I like Wood to win this fight by, uh, I'm going to say, third round submission. I feel like he's just going to piece up Castaneda on the feet for about two rounds. Then we see a sloppy shot from Castaneda later in the fight which pretty much sets up some sort of choke for Nathaniel Wood. So I like Wood to win this fight by third-round choke, but I think there's far too much juice at minus 525 on the prospect. Ramazan Amiv versus Niklas Stolsch. Trying my uh, best German accent out there. My wife is of German heritage and has a bunch of uh, German family that I've met before. And uh, I hope I made them proud with that one. But we got uh, minus 425 with Ramazan plus 340 for Stolch. Uh, Stolch is obviously making his UFC debut here. And he couldn't have a, you know, a stiffer test as his first uh, test in the UFC. Ramazan uh hasn't fought that much in the UFC considering he made his UFC debut back in 2017 against uh, Sam Alvey. I'll always remember that strictly due to the fact that I had uh, Ramazan Amiv as the lock of the night play at plus money. Um, That's when I was betting a little bit smaller of units, so I was able to actually get in on that opener. Uh, But yeah, we obviously know he went in there and picked apart Sam Alvey for 15 minutes, and that's what he's done to three of his last four opponents all within the UFC. Alberto Mina... Sam Alvey and Stefan Sekulic. Um, and then most recently, he lost a fight in November to Anthony Rocco Martin in a fight where Martin just showed off the, the, the power of calf kicks. He pretty much just tore up Amiv's front leg and was able to open up the rest of his game due to that. Um, but uh, outside of that, you know, whenever Amiv fights anybody else um, that doesn't have such a calf kick heavy game plan, uh, he's very efficient with the strikes. He's good with getting in and out and not really getting hit too much. Um I don't see that much from Nicholas. Nicholas doesn't seem like a guy that targets the the calf as much. Um, he's a pretty well-rounded striker. Um, has decent jujitsu as well too. Uh, but it's tough to really get a um, a read on how good this kid is, or you know what his skill level really is, based on him not fighting you know UFC level competition. And man, is he getting UFC level competition in this first fight against Ramazan Amiv. Um, 
I expect it to be a striking battle. I expect them to pretty much just trade on the feet, but I expect Ramazan to be the slightly more efficient fighter. You know, landing his one-twos, landing a couple leg kicks, getting in and out. Um, Nicolas seems seems a little bit more of a a wild and chaotic fighter, not like fucking Michelle Pereira type of fighter, but like, uh, you know, likes to throw spinning shit every now and then. Um, Yeah, this fight's just really, really tough for me to get a true read on. Um, even at the current lines, it, it just screams past to me, minus 425 for Amiv. Uh, I wouldn't even bother parlaying him here because, again, we don't know exactly what we're going to expect or see from Stolch here. And he could go out there and, and you know, look like a, a brilliant striker against Ramazan Amiv, who is, again, a little bit more uh, tactical and calculated with his movements. And sometimes that may be a de- detriment to him in terms of getting the judges' scorecards. But... When we see him on, he's really good at, you know, hitting and not getting hit himself. Um, yeah, th- this fight's a bit of a pass for me. Uh, what's the uh, the over-under? It's at 2.5. Yeah, minus 290 for the over 2.5. I could absolutely see that being the case here. So I'll go with Ramazan Amiv to win this fight by decision. Uh, but I don't see a value on anything on this fight, really. Um, yeah, I think that... Uh, uh, we'll see a, a classic Ramazan Amiv performance here en route to a decision victory. Penny Kianzad versus Bech Kohea. We got minus 155 on Kianzad and plus 135 on Bech Kohea. This fight has kind of been uh, widening in odds as the time is going on. It opened up at a pick'em, and slowly we've seen a lot of money come in on Penny Kianzad, and I can't blame them. Uh, Penny Kianzad obviously going to have a two-inch head advantage as well as a th- uh, two-inch reach advantage. Uh, and most recently, she won a decision victory over Jessica Rose Clark. Um, you know, with her being the slightly longer woman, uh, in my opinion, the slightly more polished striker too, and probably the better overall fighter, uh, I, I can absolutely understand why the why the line is moving towards the Kianzad side. If you guys have been watching me for a while, you guys know that I don't have much of a much love for Bet Kohea and. It's nothing to do with her as a person or anything like that, but I just don't think that she's UFC level. And when she starts going out there and beating girls like Sajara Eubanks and and Just Guy and stuff, it really makes you wonder, uh, you know, the level of competition within the women's MMA divisions uh, in total. Um, you know, there was there was some normalcy return whenever she lost to girls like Holly Holm and Irene Aldana, but she was doing pretty well against Irene Aldana before she actually got finished there. Even Holly Holm, she was doing decently. She was, you know, crashing forward, landing a couple shots, and then getting out of the way. But her technique, it just is so flawed. Um, and, and it's just so hard to back a woman like her, too. The only thing you can really bank on whenever you're betting Kohea is the fact that she's she does, she's not afraid of a firefight and she's willing to be the one that's pressuring forward. Uh, in this fight against Penny, I could absolutely see her go out there and break Penny. Um, but, uh, you know, there's something in my brain just blocking me from thinking that Betch is actually going to win this fight. I fully expect Penny to to mix in, you know, takedowns with, with uh, uh, you know, a point fighting style on the feet, uh, staying away from any of the big shots from Betch, even though I don't believe Betch has, you know, much knockout power or anything like that. But that's pretty much the only way I see Betch winning this fight is if she just, you know, crashes forward and just, uh, you know, lands big shots, hurts Penny maybe once around or something and, and possibly gets the judges' scorecard at the end. But I truly believe it's going to be Penny kind of mixing together an overall game and, uh, 
you know, you got to say that Betch has definitely faced a higher level of competition. And when she has faced a higher level of competition, she's come up short. Um, you know, look at this stretch. Goddamn. So since she had her title fight with Ronda Rousey in 2015, she's lost a split to Raquel Pennington, won a split over Jessica I, had a draw against Marion Renault, lost two fights to Holly Holm and Irene Aldana, and then just most recently beat Sajar Eubanks as a pretty hefty underdog too. Uh, yeah, plus 240. That was very surprising for a lot of people. Um, yeah, I like. I still like Kianzad here. I'm going to take her to win this fight by decision, but minus 155, like if you, if I had started or studied this fight when it was like at minus 115 minus 120 i would consider it but at minus 155 i just don't feel like there's enough value on penny here you know considering i still believe she's an average fighter um but yeah i'll go with penny here to win this fight by by decision uh but i wouldn't be surprised to see betch come out here and and spring some sort of an upset Rafael Pessoa versus Tanner Bozer. We got minus 250 on Tanner Bozer plus 210 on Rafael Pessoa uh, the intriguing part of this is also that the over-under is at 2.5, um, with the over being minus 160 and the under being plus uh, under 2.5 being plus 140. Uh, but uh, this was a fight where I actually went into it thinking that, okay, Tanner Bozer will probably be a lock of the night play. You know, he's a very efficient fighter, throws great leg kicks, has solid cardio, uh, moves very well for a heavyweight as well, um, and came off a very impressive knockout over Philippe Lins last time around. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't, like, I, I'm not saying that the latter, like the last reasoning I just gave is the main reason. I'm, I'm thinking that Tanner Bozer was going to be a good play because, you know, as we've seen, like with Molly McCann, Tyler Santos, um, there's a couple other fights that I can't think of off the top of my head. But like the the, the recency bias, you got to throw that shit out the window. You can't just strictly base what a fighter is going to look like based off of their last fight. Uh, you got to, you know, put together a solid number of fights where you think like, okay, you know, this person showed legitimate skill they showed a certain tendency that i really like for a handful of fights uh to be confident enough to be like okay they're probably going to go out there and implement this type of game plan and that's kind of what i see what half y'all pace out because Pretty much everything that I explained as to why I like Tanner Bozer is why I like Rafael Pesoa, which makes me think that this line should be much closer than it is. Um, plus 210 for Rafael Pesoa, in my opinion, is a little bit of a steal. I thought you would get maybe plus 140, max plus 150 on Rafael Pesoa. Um, but man, he moves well for a heavyweight. You know, he looks slightly more out of shape than Tanner Bozer, but he moves just as well. Like, it, it's crazy. His cardio seemed good too, especially when he went those three rounds against uh, Jeff Hughes last time around uh the fight before that obviously you know didn't go that long with uh with uh Cyril Gunn but uh Tanner Bozer is no Cyril Gunn and you can't use this whole MMA math thing where it's like Tanner Bozer went 15 minutes with uh Cyril Gunn uh Pesol couldn't even get out of the first with him completely different fights you know what I mean when you when you match these guys up they're completely different fighters completely different styles um but yeah, with Pesoa, I'm, I'm impressed with him. Again, I was going into this thinking that, all right, Tanner Bozer is probably going to be the more efficient fighter. We'll probably leg kick this guy to death and then, you know, follow up with the finish uh, surrounding that. But he throws kicks just as well. You know, he moves just as well. Um, he, he's slightly taller. He's 6'3 compared to the 6'1. Let me just 6'2 of Tanner Bozer. But he does also have a, a, a two and a half reach, reach advantage as well, too. So that's something to, 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 to keep in mind the the one thing here is also going to be if uh, Tanner Bozer is able to implement his leg kicks 
earlier and more often than Pesola, but I think that Pesola moves well enough to to get out of most of those. He has a solid Muay Thai background as well too, so I think he'll be able to at least check some of the leg kicks coming his way and then dish them out himself. Um, but yeah, plus 210 is a little bit ridiculous for uh, a guy that shows solid skills. Uh, he's still only 31, so he's still only like entering his prime. He's getting better and better. He's 10 and 1 now, his only loss again being to Cyril Gunn. He moves very well. Uh, yeah, the, 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 there's just... A lot of positives here that make me believe that this fight should be lined much closer, which is why I'm more than likely going to be taking a shot at Peso above plus 200. I'm probably going to throw maybe one unit around uh, plus 205. Not 100% sure yet. I'm going to see where this line goes throughout the week. Um, And then obviously, uh, if you guys aren't watching this on the Patreon uh, and you're just watching it as like a, a, a public YouTube release on my on my normal podcast. You don't know if I actually made this pick or not for sure. <laughs> um, we're on paid picks for this week. So, uh, you know, you, you're going to have to either hop on the Patreon or uh, check out the website for the for the official plays for this card. Uh, but we're on a three-event morning streak, so that's probably why. Will I play Peso for sure or not? Who knows? But I will take Peso to win this fight. Uh, uh, by uh, I'll take him to win by decision. Um, and Tanner Bozer is very, very durable. Obviously, again, he went the full three rounds of gone. He's gone a full three and even five rounds in the past before. Um, but I think that Peso will go out there and probably have a little bit more activity, a little bit more output, and get the judges nod. Uh, and yeah, as a solid underdog, I, I don't see why you shouldn't put money on him here. Peso via decision. Movzara Evloev versus Mike Grundy, or as the Brazilian commentators in uh, Mike Grundy's last fight before the UFC called him, Mike Grunge. I don't know why the fuck I find that so hilarious, but we got minus 195 on Movzara Evloev and plus 170 on Mike Grunge. Um, This is going to be a very fun grappling fight. Both guys are predominantly uh, grapplers, even though the last fight, both of them pretty much showed really good striking or decent striking, at least in uh, Mike Grundy's case. Uh, He was able to land a beautiful shot on Nad Niramani back in March of last year, which was his last fight. And... uh, yeah, he rocked uh, Niramani a couple times. He, he landed a perfect, like, right down the middle, right straight down the middle. And then I believe the punch that ended up rocking Niramani was a left hook. But, uh, you know, Niramani pretty much that entire fight was throwing winging hooks. Uh, it seemed like he just had, like, this right straight and left hook that he was always throwing back to back, kind of just blitzing Grundy and trying to land cleanly on him. And then for the duration of that fight, Mike Grundy was just, again, like landing that straight right down the middle, a little bit more crisp right down the stri- uh, straight line, uh, which was a little bit easier to, to reach the target than Niramani's uh, winging hooks. And then obviously, you know, if you if you watch Grundy's earlier fights uh, or pretty much any other fight than the Niramani fight, he's a grapple-heavy kind of guy. Like, he doesn't let you breathe. Uh, you know, I think it was the 2014 Commonwealth uh wrestling bronze medalist or something like that um let's just get this straight you know whether you medaled in the olympics or whatever the fuck it is uh, a great M- uh, wrestler is not technically a great mma wrestler and there are two different things it's kind of like calling you know it's like if you called all wrestlers pretty much the same level or sorry all black belts the same they're not you know within black belts there are levels to themselves too like you can't call you know um what's his face fucking Cub Swanson, but black belt, the same level of uh, a Brian Ortega black belt, or like a, you know, um, 
a Damien Maya black belt. There, there, there's so many different types of levels there. Uh, that's why I think the same thing here with uh, Grundy and Evloev is, you know, Evloev may not be as credentialed on like the Olympic scene as um, as Grundy is, but I think that uh, Evloev still has a better MMA wrestling game and a better chain wrestling game as well too, um, and a better ability to keep his opponents on the ground. And even if his opponents get back onto their feet, he does a really good job of getting back to that chain wrestling to get their the opponents down. One thing that I really like to see from Evlev is, um, you know, for most of his takedowns, there's power doubles. Uh, when his opponent, you know, does have a, a solid sprawl or initially a solid sprawl, uh, he does a really good job of cutting angles and like really flipping his opponents over to pretty much nullify the, nullify the sprawl that's coming their way. Mike Grundy, on the other hand, I feel like he's more so of a one and done kind of guy. Like he shoots him for his takedowns. If he doesn't get them, uh, you know, he either gives up on them or he just starts clinching up against the cage. And Evloev is kind of guilty of that too in terms of, you know, if he fails on a on a takedown but his opponent is up against the cage, he's going to ride them there. He's going to make it a living hell. He's going to, you know, grab their back um, and do whatever it is. But um, I do like Evloev's ability to to take the back. You know, he's pretty slick with it too, considering that he's not like a, um, you know, not really known specifically for his jujitsu, but more so known for his wrestling. But but his back takes are very very impressive. His hands have definitely gotten better too. Like I said, both of them uh, shown improvements in their last fights with their striking. I think we saw a little bit more of a well-rounded approach and an improvement from Movzar uh, with the striking. You know, mainly training over there at Tiger Muay Thai, getting in some rounds with Piotr Jan and obviously all the other great striking coaches and, and training partners he has there. But that's obviously the weakest part of his game. And we've seen in his last fight that he's making improvements. Like he's he's fighting smarter. He's seeing the openings. Like when... Um, uh, when when Enrique Barzolo was just like you know framing off of him in those close clinch situations he was very cognizant of knowing to throw the uppercut right up the middle because that was open and that was often something that you would pick up on uh that uh Barzolo was using as a defensive tactic I, I like Evolov man I like his cardio I think his pace is going to be a little bit too much for Grundy uh you know the the consistent train chain wrestling the the sticking on him as much as possible I think if we're going takedown for takedown moves are probably hasn't beat here again with the chain wrestling and the cardio i think that's that's what separates the two and again the 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 improvements that evloev is making in his striking i think will allow uh him to kind of cruise away with the decision here especially if this fight ends up you know kind of being a stalemate in the wrestling i think that we'll see evloev with his activity and, and his movement and um his output be way more than grundy's like if we saw in the Naramani and Grundy fight, that was a little bit of, um, you know, Grundy landed a beautiful takedown in that fight, but that was primarily a striking fight because both those guys are primarily wrestlers. I think that Evloev does have the better wrestling out of those three, but, uh, you know, if, if 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 Grundy's not able to get his wrestling going and if Evloev for some reason is not able to get his wrestling going and it comes down strictly to the striking, I'd have to go with Evloev. Like, uh... You know, Grundy is just more so like a one-and-done guy with his striking as well, too. So that's a little bit of a concern. I, I don't understand the, the the massive amount of love that Grundy is getting. Like, yeah, we did see Barzola get Evloev down, but that's not really the end of the world. You know, I mean, Evloev or um, Barzola is uh, a striker turned grappler, 
but he's such a strong grappler and all those rounds he's getting over there at aka was very uh very much helpful for him too i think evloev is slowly growing into this featherweight division as well too he, you know he came over from m1 as the m1 bantamweight champion his last two fights in the ufc have been at featherweight and i think he's slowly getting more comfortable at that weight class and grundy's a strong guy but that's that's the thing that's like at a certain point the strength is going to start to fall off when Evloev's uh a pace and and pressure and consistent like you know just bullying pretty much starts to catch up with you I think at the you know midway point of this fight we'll start to see Granny start to break and Evloev start to take over um my only the only concern here for Evloev would be like a Hail Mary punch or you know a, a meme KO as they call it uh for Grundy uh, you know again takedown for takedown i, I gotta take Avloev. i think he's always gonna come out on top even if grundy gets him down i think we'll see Avloev pretty much right back to his feet um we've seen that for grundy sometimes he gets a little bit too desperate with his takedowns and he allows his opponents to to, to reverse him in those situations and i don't think we've seen grundy fight anybody with the level of wrestling that Avloev is going to bring closest thing we saw was nad Naramani, and i would rate Avloev way higher than Naramani at this point in time the guy the kid's still young um he has a lot of room to grow still he's 26 years old 13 or 12 and 0 coming into this fight yeah th this is a great fight for him um again outside of a flash ko or anything like that from grundy i think Avalov takes this fight uh no beans about it i'm going to take him to win by decision uh, i wouldn't be uh surprised at a late finish either if like the the pace and pressure really gets to grundy uh maybe like a, a late choke or um or a overwhelming tko ground and pound but i do like Avalov here i'm going to take him to win officially by decision but again wouldn't be surprised by a late finish uh but yeah i'd love to see what is in store for movesar personally i'd like to see him go back to bantamweight i think he'd have a lot of success there but i think he's a pretty good training partner of Piotr Jan now which might you know obviously give us some issues so maybe he just wants to go up there to at 145 and 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 lay his uh, claim there but yeah i got evloev to win this fight by decision uh and uh yeah i really like him at the spot and currently even at the odds at minus 195 i think that's a bit of a steal so i like evloev here i think he wins by decision uh, barring any freak KO or Hail Mary KO from the Grundy side. Jake Collier versus Tom Aspinall. We got minus 235 on the newcomer Aspinall, and we got plus 195 on the UFC vet Jake Collier. So let's start off with Collier. We haven't seen that him that often. Um, you know, since 2015, or sorry, since 2016, he's only had three fights. Uh, he's been trading wins and losses for the majority of his UFC career, uh, currently on a 3-3 three three run in the UFC, uh, most recently coming off a victory over Marcel Fortuna back in November of 2017, which is a fight where we saw a lot of toughness, grit, um, and just a, a better cardio and gas tank than Marcel Fortuna. Um, Collier has decent striking. Uh, he does a good job of, you know, uh, when he gets his opponents down, he does a good job of staying on top of them, uh, controlling them, uh, landing good enough shots, and staying active enough so the referee doesn't really stand them up or anything. <clears throat> uh, Tom Aspinall, on the other hand, trains at the same gym as uh, Darren Till. Um, you know, that's one of the bigger bodies that Darren Till uses, uh, considering how big of a guy that guy is too. Uh, but Aspinall, most of his fights have been pretty quick finishes. Um, you know, right now, since his last loss, he's only been in the cage for 
three minutes total. You know, his last fight was 56 seconds. Before that, minute 21, which ended in a gruesome knee injury, if, or sorry, leg injury, kind of like Anderson Silva, Chris Weidman-esque. And then the fight before that, he finished the guy in a minute and 16 seconds. Uh, there's no tape on his Lucas Parabich fight from Batman 25, so that's kind of hard to find. And, and uh, well, you can't find it at all. I think they, they didn't even tape the prelims for that card. But... Uh, you know, that one would have been very helpful to see, uh, considering that's one of the two fights that uh, Tom Aspinall has actually even been into the second round. So the question marks regarding his gas tanks are, or gas tank is still there, especially considering the one f uh, the one loss and footage that we actually have of him going into the second round against Stuart Austin at Bama 21. You know, we see him have success on the feet, but pretty quickly Stuart Austin is able to get the takedown and uh you know make it a difficult night for Tom Aspinall I was kind of impressed with what I saw with Aspinall off of his back they said he was a brown belt in jiu-jitsu but uh you know there's I guess levels to brown belts because in the second round you see Stuart Austin go out there and pull off a beautiful heel hook after reversing Aspinall from being on top of him uh it didn't even seem like uh, either Aspinall didn't have the gas tank or Aspinall was, is, you know, not just a legitimate black or brown belt and didn't know how to defend a heel hook. You know, if I know that was five years ago and I'm sure he's gotten better from that. But, you know, it just leads me to believe that these guys at heavyweight don't really, you know, improve that much from fight to fight uh he is 27 years old so maybe he has uh what is that five years ago he was 22 years old when he lost that um but uh yeah i'm still questioning his cardio you know until we see him truly tested i believe that uh you know he shouldn't be deserving of that minus 235 line that he's currently at um you know I'm sure he is skilled enough to beat Jay Collier here. But again, the, one of the big things that I really look at when going into betting fights is the cardio and gas tank and it, knowing if your guy can go the full 15 minutes. And Jay Collier is quite durable. Uh, you know, he, he can take a shot. Um, the last time he lost was to Dangi Yang by finish. Um, Devin Clark went to a decision with him. And Vito Miranda did finish him as well, too. But in the fights that he stuck around and he did a lot of good damage, uh, Marcel Fortuna, that was his most recent fight, and I think that's a good indication of what kind of fighter we're going to get. That's uh, that's another thing, though. This is uh, Collier's first fight up at heavyweight. Um, you know, he did start off his UFC career in the middleweight division, fought in light heavyweight for two fights, and now here he is, or I believe it was three fights. I think the Uda fight was at light heavyweight. No, sorry, that was middleweight. Devin Clark and Marcel Fortuna at light heavyweight and now again he's coming back and he's been off for an extended period of time to to uh he got popped by USADA for a 10-month suspension of some sort and then he was injured or it might have been one or the other flipped around but either way um yeah he's been out for a while but I think that uh this should still be a decent fight for him uh yeah I'm not buying the hype on Aspinall yet I want to see him take out a guy like Jay Collier, you know, preferably in the second or third round, just to kind of assert the fact that, you know, he does have cardio. He's not just a first round robust type of guy, because according to his record, that's kind of what it looks like. Um, and again, I, I like the the cardio and grit that we saw from Collier in his Fortuna fight. And yeah, that's closing in on three years ago. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, if he truly wasn't in it, he probably wouldn't come back. Um so yeah, I like Holly here. I'm gonna I'm gonna go against the grain, and uh, 
The only thing keeping me from betting him here at that plus two hundred ish line is that is that uh, that that layoff. And again, there's so many question marks around around Aspinall as well, where I just don't feel comfortable. Aspinall could absolutely go in there and just torch him in like a minute, but. I'm more so expecting Collier to survive that, get this fight into the second round. I believe his takedowns are going to be there too. So I believe uh, Collier will know that, you know, he'll have probably a bit of an advantage controlling this fight on the feet compared to just, you know, standing and striking with Tom Aspinall. So uh, I think Collier, you know, better fight IQ, uh, assuming better cardio you know just based off that one fight that we have footage of Aspinall in the second round I wasn't that impressed um and Collier has defended submissions pretty well too so I believe even if he tries to control this fight on the ground he'll be okay from Aspinall's possibly black belt now I'm assuming you know if he had his brown belt five years ago and he's still training probably has his black belt by now but regardless i'm confident in jay collier's submission defense as well so i'm going to take collier by decision i think there's a good chance he outlasts aspinall maybe a third round finish uh but i'll go with the decision to be on the safe side but uh and last thing tom aspinall making his ufc debut there's so many fighters that make their ufc debuts at this minus 230 ish type of range and then just absolutely shit the bed jeff hughes in a rematch and you know his second last fight being the same fighter maurice green he comes back into the ufc fights green again and loses some fucking how ariani lipsky against Sean calderwood there's just so many instances where like a fighter comes in as a roughly minus 200 favorite and then shits the bed uh against a more tested and and uh you have higher experienced ufc veteran so this is possibly another spot i think that's exactly what we're going to see um so i think uh you know collier is worth a bit of a shot but uh just be cautious about the fact that he's been out of the cage for close to three years now but i'll still go with collier to win this fight by decision nicholas dalby versus jesse ronson we got minus 255 on dalby Plus 215 on the returning body snatcher, Jesse Ronson. So if you guys remember Jesse Ronson, or if you have been fans long enough of the UFC, back in 2013, he was actually in the UFC. He came into the UFC with a 12 or 13-2 and record, um, but he got probably the worst possible matchups you could possibly get. And then all three losses via split decision, uh, which makes it even worse. So he gets into the UFC, fights Michel Prezerich. After that, Francisco Trinaldo. After that, Kevin Lee. Stylistically, the worst matchups you could possibly have for a guy like Jesse Ronson. And then he gets the boot from the UFC uh, and has pretty much fought all over the world in the meantime. Uh, you know, has fought the toughest of competition as well, too. Um, he had a run in TKO where he captured their title as well. And then he went over to the PFL and... Uh, you know, ran into some killers there too. He was actually supposed to fight a guy named Carlos Silva, but that guy missed weight or something and had to pull out and in steps Natan Schultz, who, you know, I, he won the PFL tournament as well too. So that just tells you alone. And his grappling is phenomenal too. So again, stylistically, probably one of the worst matchups you could possibly get if you're Jesse Ronson. Next fight uh, gets kneed and ground impounded by a uh, Alexekin, Nikolai Alexekin, and uh, PFL as well. 
very very unfortunate loss there that was two in a row for him and then he comes back in his neighborhood or his neck of the woods up here in uh in ontario gets a win over troy lamson who was on the um dana white's looking for a fight and uh you know what was pretty much the 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 center of attention on one of the episodes uh he ended up losing on that show but uh here he is coming in against jesse ronson and he lost via for a rear naked choke um in the first round interesting fight where we did see slight improvements from ronson he did you know stuff a couple takedowns but i don't think that troy lamson is the level of nicholas dobby with that said i don't think that nicholas dobby is the level of natan schultz or kevin lee or michelle prejerish you know like those guys they're they're much better wrestlers in my opinion uh yeah, very very tough fight for Ronson to come back to. You know, Dobby is primarily a grappler. Um, you know, it's evident that he watches tape on his opponents, so he knows that you know Jesse Ronson's only real way of winning this fight is uh, pretty much outstriking him on the feet, or or sorry, uh, is grappling him. Uh, and another you know uh, caveat in this fight is the fact that it's up at welterweight. Jesse Ronson's normally a lightweight. And now he's coming in against a welterweight grappler. So uh, I'm not sure how long uh, you know Dobby is willing to 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 swing on the feet for. Obviously, he's going to have to do that a little bit just to you know just to get Ronson not thinking that the takedown is coming immediately. Uh, but uh, if Ronson can keep this fight on the feet, man, he could absolutely piece up Nicholas Dobby. The unfortunate part is there's just nothing on tape that we can truly see that Ronson has has absolutely worked on that. And again, yeah, he did stuff a couple takedowns from Troy Lamson, but I think he's much lower level than Nicholas Dalby. And again, Dalby's a lot bigger too now. Um, you know, Dalby is decent on the feet, but he does get tagged and he does get hit a lot. Um, but he's he has a ton of resilience. And the, the thing is, he has a very sneaky good record too. He's 18-3-1 coming into this fight. That's weird considering that he was cut from the UFC. Um, I believe his one of his losses, or he had a draw against Darren Till. Then he lost three straight. Zach Cummings, Pierce Sabota, and Carlo Pedersoli. Then he found himself on the cage warrior scene where he won a title and uh, had a crazy fight with Ross Houston where they had to stop the fight due to the amount of blood in the cage. That was probably one of the craziest things and probably the most uncomfortable things i've ever seen in terms of watching these guys trying to grapple and just slipping and sliding all over the place and just seeing each other cover with blood one of the craziest things we've ever seen uh and then he comes back to the ufc i believe it was in denmark that he made his return uh yeah it was denmark on the hermanson and cannoneer card where he got a uh, solid win over alex Oliveira as a decent underdog too i remember making a little bit of money on that fight because i did place a bet on him there but uh, yeah, this is stylistically a much better fight for him. Ronson just does not show, uh, you know, does not show what you really want to see in a guy that is a very good striker, but a very good uh, or or a very poor grappler. But the thing is, at minus two fifty five, I don't feel comfortable playing Nicholas Dalby. You know, what I mean, there, there is the chance that Ronson can catch him on the feet. Ronson is very well refined on the feet too. He has great head kicks. He has great combinations. Uh, decent movement. But uh, if Dalby does trap him up against the cage, he will get him down, and he could probably ride out the position for, for a solid three rounds. I just don't feel comfortable playing Dalby at that line. If you gave me maybe minus 160, minus 150 or something like that, I would consider it a little bit more. But the, the line is a little bit too, too juiced uh, considering the discrepancy that they have on the feet. So I will take Dobby to win this fight. I think he's going to win by decision. Uh, it's unfortunate for Ronson, but this is his in back into the UFC. Now, hopefully his next fight, he can get it at lightweight. And hopefully, 
the UFC will give him a gift this time around of potentially finding another striker. You know, I mean, he's put on, uh, you know, tons of fun fights. I've I've worked on a couple of the fights that he had up here in Ontario. And man, one of the fights that really sticks out to me is his fight against Ryan Healy. That was one of the, uh, I believe it was his second or third last fight before he initially made it to the UFC yeah, it was the second last fight before making it to the UFC. But, man, that fight was a battle. Probably one of the craziest fights. The chin on Healy in that fight. That that should have been a Ronson KO fight. But uh, Healy's chin was just insane. Ryan Healy, obviously the brother of former UFC fighter Pat Healy. Both guys are tough as nails. Uh, but, yeah, Jesse Ronson, great striker, poor grappler, which is going to be the downfall for him here. So I'll take Nicholas Dalby to win this fight by decision. Francisco Trinaldo versus Jai Herbert. Uh, we got minus 145 on Trinaldo, plus 125 on Herbert. And as this fight week's been progressing, we've been seeing this line slowly get closer and closer. And after running some of the tape, I kind of understand the reasoning as to why. I still believe that Trinaldo is rightfully the favorite. Um, you know, the guy packs a lot of power. He's quite precise with most of his, most of his strikes. Um, it's crazy to think that he's in his 40s. I want to get the actual age correct. Yeah, he's 41. He'll be 42 in uh, August. But uh, the guy's still doing the damn thing. And his his style is like very like slow and plotting. But he's very stalkerish in terms of how he's always like approaching his opponents is kind of just walking them, walking them down. And he has the power to 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 allow that to happen. You know, what I mean, most of these fighters, John McDessie being the last one are very intimidated by this guy's power and uh you know he's sharp with the strikes uh great kicks great knees um covers distance quite well too with his strikes but in this fight with herbert he's gonna have to worry a little bit more than just uh you know walking down his opponent herbert moves quite well is a great uh striker himself as well kicks very well too um does a good job of getting out of the way of most of his shots uh his only loss is to reese mckee who also makes his ufc debut uh earlier in this card um but uh he, i believe he's made a lot of adjustments since that fight you know his striking has looked better and better each fight um you know i could absolutely see him go out there and outpoint trinaldo um i could also see him potentially getting a stoppage too the thing is you guys know me and ufc debuters unless it's somebody like a guy like hamza chimaev or something like that uh i i, I don't really try to i don't i use that as a, kind of like a deterrent or a negative uh aspect as the fact that they're making their ufc debut um the under two and a half though plus 155 is not that bad of a line considering that both of these guys are strikers trinaldo always throws with a lot of power in his hands and he could absolutely catch jay herbert on the way in um i think that herbert is just a little bit more well-rounded and being able to you know strike without getting hit uh with being able to just get in and out um you know land enough kicks to to pretty much sway the judges um but man, Trinaldo always finds ways to 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 squeak out victories. Um, th this fight was a little bit harder to cap, which is why I'm probably going to stay away from it uh, from a betting perspective, especially with the line closing as much as it is. But with the with the with the pace and activity and and the movement of Jai Herbert, it's kind of hard not to go with him, and especially with him having a plus money beside his name, 
you know, you got to think that he's a little bit of the value here too. At a certain point, Francisco Trinaldo is going to have to start to slow down. Like that's just fucking, you know, the human body at, at 41, 42 years old, he's slowly going to start to to lose a step or, or not be as sharp. And we don't know when that fight is actually going to be, but Jai Herbert has a good chance of, you know, exploding that a little bit. Um, you know, again, being a good striker, managing distance well, kicking well too, uh, as long as you can stay away from the big shots of Francisco Trinaldo, he should absolutely be able to come out with a victory here. So I'm going to go with Jai Herbert. I think he plays a super safe fight. Um, you know, again, I, I did mention the under two and a half at plus 155. At Anything over plus 150 in a fight where there's two strikers and uh, at least one of them having legit knockout power, I'll always entertain it. Not saying that I'll bet it, but it's something that just catches my eye and something that I want to bring to your attention as well too. But I do think the path to victory for Jai Herbert here is going to be the de- uh, going the decision, chipping away at Trinaldo for those 15 minutes. As long as he can stay away from those big shots of Trinaldo, he should have a good chance of, uh, of winning the judge's decision here. So I will go with Jai Herbert to win this fight by decision, uh, but I'm not super confident in it either. Hamzat Chimaya versus Reese McKee. Almost fucked that one up. Uh, minus 1100 on Hamzat, plus 700 on McKee, and rightfully so. Um, we all know what Hamzat's all about. We just saw him pretty much uh, two events ago now, or maybe three events it's been. Uh, but uh, went in there, absolutely steamrolled John Phillips. Uh, got the finish in under uh, one and a half rounds. And the one and a half round uh, prop right now is minus 205. And that's quite fitting. The fight doesn't go to the decision is minus 535. And then Chimaev inside the distance is minus 410. Makes absolute sense. You know, uh, Chimaev uh, made his UFC debut at middleweight and went up against a pretty chunky and 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 heavy uh, John Phillips. Uh, somebody that, you know, obviously has more size than Reese McKee. Uh and the, the the probably the most interesting part and the, the the most shocking part was to find out that Kamzad is actually a welterweight and not a middleweight. He looked huge even at middleweight. Absolutely ragdolled John Phillips as well too. Say what you want about Phillips and his lack of grappling experience and grappling skills, but just to absolutely steamroll him the way that he did and you know, pass the guard as many times as he did and absolutely just demolish him. It was very, very impressive on behalf of Hamzat Chimaev. Uh, Reese McKee, on the other hand, is more of a striker, long, lanky kid, uh, 10 2 and 1, I believe. He does have a, a draw on his record. Yeah, uh, 10 2 and 1. Uh, it's weird that his one draw was to Richie Smolin. And if most of you guys remember Richie Smolin, he had a pretty unfortunate run on the ultimate fighter um where he lost his uh last fight i believe to to luis pena that was his one fight in the ufc and then he got caught after that but the guy's not that good i was kind of surprised that he even made it on to the ultimate fighter and he made it on the ultimate fighter right after the reese mckee fight but uh smaller mainly a jiu-jitsu practitioner um you know comes into this fight uh now mckee you know came out of that fight uh with what is that 
five and one record. Uh, his most recent one being a step up to welterweight, which seems to be the division that he wants to stay at now. The guy used to be a very thin uh, 155er, and uh, you know somehow made 155 on a regular basis. Now here he is at 170, but he's only one fight into it, and he's coming in against a guy that is just one of the bigger, is going to be one of the bigger welterweights for sure. And I'm surprised that he's able to make that quick transition from weighing in at middleweight to now uh, at welterweight. I'm talking about Hamzat uh, within a week, week and a half's time. Uh, I think he has a ton of potential, Hamzat, that is. Um, you know, the the style here is perfect uh, in terms of this McKee fight. Again, McKee primarily being a striker, doesn't have much to offer in terms of like off of his back. Um you know the 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 choke win that he got over Perry Andre Goodwin probably not the 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 craziest choke out there and probably not the highest level of competition. His last two opponents alone, you know what? Make that three opponents are. Where is that? Twenty six, twenty six and eighteen. Kind of a sketchy, salty record there. All those guys are really, you know obviously not at the level of Hamzat. And then, uh, you know, Hamzat obviously is still inexperienced relatively, you know, seven wins now. Um, but I think that the talent and skill that we see from him on a fight-to-fight basis is just ridiculous. He makes no qualms about it. He wants to go in there, take you down, and then either, you know, sink in some sort of choke or just ground and pound your face through the canvas. Um, he's going to have absolutely no trouble here doing that against Reese McKee. And the main issue and the main concern for a lot of people is, okay, we know Hamzat's going to win, but is it going to be over one and a half or under one and a half? Personally, I believe it's going to be under one and a half. If you go back and watch the Terry Brazier fight of Reese McKee, you see how easy it is for Brazier to continuously take McKee down and continuously pass his guard. And yeah, he didn't get the finish, but if you give Hamzat those types of positions, He's probably going to get the finish, whether it's you know vicious ground and pound or a submission uh, of some sort. Uh, he's going to get it. Uh, there, I have no doubt about it. I believe he'll get him down right off the bat within the fi- first fifteen to twenty seconds, and then you know just do work from there. Uh, easily passing guard, uh, you know, raining down shots, raining down elbows, and it's going to be a, a quick night for Hamza once again. And I want to be surprised if they throw him in there once again. You know, within the next month or so. I know this is the last event that they're doing at Fight Island, at least for July. And then they're back in Vegas. I'm not sure if Hamza will be able to get over to Vegas uh, to potentially fight at the Apex. But I know he's going to want to get in there quickly again after disposing of Reese McKee pretty quickly. Um, Yeah. This is probably the toughest first fight you could ever have in the UFC. You know, you've dreamed of it for so long. Uh, you've fallen off the horse a couple times, gotten back on the horse, and you get the call to to fight Hamzat Chemaev on super short notice. I know they released a video about uh, McKee seeing that and and sorry, hearing that from I believe the the president of Cage Warriors. Um, you know, he's just so overwhelmed with the fact that he made it to the UFC and kind of just bypasses the part where he says, you know, it's against Hamzat. He goes, all right, fuck, I'll take whatever it is to get to the UFC, secure a three or four fight deal, uh, know that I'm going to be getting a fight after that for sure, and start to, you know, grow within the UFC, start to get better against uh, these higher levels of fighters. Uh, but yeah, Hamza's probably not the guy that you want to see on the other end of the cage in your first fight in the UFC. So, um, Easy win for Hamza, in my opinion. I think he gets him down with relative ease and starts passing guard and and raining down shots, opening up a submission of some sort. But uh, it's going to be hard for me to see anybody 
uh, defeating Chimaev, uh, you know, outside of the top five. It's it, he's going to have a, a meteoric rise, but I do think that they should, uh, you know, slowly bring him along, start to you know feed him a little bit uh, of the UFC veterans at that one seventy pound division, and then start to get him into the uh, top fifteen, top ten, and so on and so forth. But no need to rush this guy. The kid's still young, um, only seven and zero. Like I said, he's twenty six years old. He has a solid ten to. 14 years if you wanted to still fight up into his 40s uh, I think with his style his ability to take very minimal damage um, that that will definitely help in his longevity in his career but I, I'm really very very high on Hamzat um, instead of playing him inside the distance which is minus 410 uh, I think the under two and a half is probably the way to go um, yeah ton, ton of talent on this kid ton of finishing uh instincts as well too which you know really helps uh if you're looking to bet the inside the distance or unders or whatever it is in these Hamzat fights but this is a perfect matchup for him to go out there ragdoll a striker a lanky striker um and that that's another thing i, I just i'm not 100 percent sure whether we're getting a 6-3 Reese McKee, according to uh, his last Cage Warriors fight, or a 6-1 McKee, according to his Taptology page. So we'll see what the metrics on the UFC says once they start to measure him out and, and get the tail of the tape out there for us. But uh, yeah, once again, Hamzat Chimaev via first round um, TKO or submission. Not 100% sure. Let's see what the odds suggest that they believe he'll pull off. Actually, that's not even out yet. But Chimaev inside the distance is minus 410. So that makes a little bit uh, of sense. So Chimaev inside the distance within one round. Uh, complete domination. Cowboy Alex Oliveira versus Peter Sabota. We got minus 175 on Alex Oliveira and plus 155 on Peter Sabota. And it feels like Peter Sabota has been in the UFC forever. And rightfully so. Uh, his first UFC fight was way back in 2014. Uh, and he hasn't fought that much either. There's a couple of guys on the card that are kind of like that. Jay Collier being another one who's been in the UFC for a long time. But their resume is just kind of small in terms of actually being in the UFC. So Peter Sabota actually has three, six fights in the UFC. Going a total of four and two. Uh, his two losses, the Kyle Noak one being a little bit sketchy. Just because I feel like he's a much better fighter than him. And then the Leon Edwards fight, you know. He got knocked out with one second left in the fight. Uh, and Leon Edwards is one of the top contenders in the welterweight division. So it's not too bad of a, of a loss for him. His wins have come over Pavel Pavluk, uh, Stephen Kennedy, uh, Nicholas Dalby, and Ben Saunders. Uh, Dalby probably being the best out of all of them. Uh, but I still feel like Peter Sabota has uh, a ton of skill and a ton of uh, expertise to, to be very successful in this fight against uh, Cowboy Oliveira. He's still only 33, which is still very good for him. He's still in his peak. He could still perform at a high level, whereas Alex Oliveira, 32. The one thing is I feel like we've already seen him peak. You know, um, he has this wild, aggressive style. Isn't super technical with many of his striking. Um, you know, sometimes we see him bust out the capoeira where he starts doing this weird foot movement and try to throw his opponents off, but it's nothing super effective where he's able to get like finishes or anything crazy like that. Uh, last time around that we saw him, he lost a split or he won a split decision against Max Griffin, but you know, we continue to see the, the deterioration of the, the Cowboy Oliveira skill set. And I think that Peter Sabota can bring a very, very, um, tough 
style of fight and stylistically again i think it's a it's a difficult fight for cowboy Oliveira. so why he's a minus 175 favorite i can't really say um one thing we've seen plague cowboy throughout his career is his poor gas tank um you know definitely in that third round he always seems to slow down a little bit and i think with the expertise and uh, skill level of Peter Sabota, uh, you know, from the striking end, I think his best um, asset is his grappling and his submission game. Uh, I, I think that could pose problems for Oliveira. I could absolutely see Sabota going out there and taking Oliveira down, uh, making it a grinding fight, and, uh, you know, potentially submitting him later in the fight. And again, I think he's sufficient enough on the feet that he can hang with Cowboy there. And again, Cowboy's a little bit wild. He throws with a lot of uh, power and and he is awkward just due to his frame. But I think that uh, Sobota just being the more technical guy, um, obviously, again, uh, better on the ground. I think, uh, you know, you got to favor the dog here. Um, I expected the line to be a little bit closer, and I'm surprised that it's trying to widen a little bit. Um, I do want to see what the line movement actually was. So Cowboy Oliver opens up as a minus 180 favorite, and it's pretty much just gone up and down, up and down, and pretty much fizzled out at roughly minus 175. And I... You know, I don't know if people are just not aware of what Peter Sabota is uh, capable of, but I think that he he could definitely pose some problems here for uh, Cowboy Oliveira. So outside with Peter Sabota, I'll even say Sabota by third round submission. Uh, but he is high level, man. He's just the fact that he hasn't fought a lot is kind of why I believe he's flying under the radar for a lot of people. But uh, yeah, I think he's very, very skilled. And uh, Oliveira, again, just being the wild man that he is, he's a very beatable fighter. And uh, we've seen, you know, if you're losing decisions to Mike Perry, in my opinion, you're not really at the highest of levels. And you know, Mike Perry, one-dimensional striker, likes to move forward and just, and just likes to throw bombs. Um, Peter Sabota is a little bit more tactical than that, and I do expect him to throw in some takedowns here and there, uh, which should help him ride out this fight uh, and get him to that third round. Tire out Cowboy Oliveira enough as well uh, to get that late submission stoppage. So I'm going to go with Peter Sabota to win this fight by third round submission. Um, and yeah, I think he has some solid value at that plus 155 line that he's currently at. Gadzimarad anti Gulov versus Paul Craig. We got minus 125 for Paul Craig, plus 105 for anti Gulov. Uh, but the line that I want to bring your attention to is the under one and a half. Currently, we're roughly around minus 130, minus 125 at a couple places. But uh, that's probably the line that you want to hone in on here. So let's start off with Paul Craig. He's coming off a split decision draw uh, to Shogun Hua. That was back in November. And, uh, you know, he's been pretty much trading wins and losses since he's gotten into the UFC. But one thing that he's always bringing to the table is a firefight and uh, not, you know, uh, doesn't have any qualms about really, uh, you know, stepping into the fire, really trading with his opponents, whether it's uh, grappling or, or striking or whatever it is. Obviously, his main go-to technique or his main go-to skill set is his jiu-jitsu and is his grappling. But we have seen on numerous occasions where he doesn't mind trading uh, on the feet. Uh, but this fight against Antigulov is should be fun, <laughs> you know, for as long as Antigulov's gas tank can can make it uh, entertaining. Um, it, it could definitely be uh, a firefight. I expect Antigulov to pretty much, you know, just as he does in all of his fights 
desperately go for a takedown. Just try to get this fight to the ground. Even though Paul Craig is a solid jiu-jitsu player himself, I, I believe that. And to go off things, his strength, his wrestling, and his own jiu-jitsu will be more than enough to uh, to submit and stop Paul Craig. Because all he ever has is like four to five minutes of gas, maybe even less than that, depending on the output, the offensive output from his opponent. And I believe from Paul Craig, we'll see... In those clinch situations, I expect like within the first 30 seconds for this fight to be, um, you know, up against the cage, Antigulov pushing Paul Craig up there, trying to work for a takedown. But I expect during that time for Paul Craig to be releasing all sorts of hell on Antigulov in that situation. And within the three or four minute mark, if Antigulov hasn't already finished Paul Craig, we're going to see Antigulov start to to suck when to, to look like death, pretty much. That's always been his downfall. And it's hard to 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 really give tips to a fighter on how to improve their cardio. It seems like fighters that just have shit cardio always have shit cardio. There are the exceptions. The one that really comes to mind for me is Darren Stewart. We've seen him have horrible uh, cardio in the past, but as of late, we've seen him pick it up, and you know he looks even stronger in some third rounds than he has in the past. But this is Antigulov. I don't think we're going to see any different every any difference from him. He has a very strong wrestling game. He's more often than not able to get his opponents to the ground, but uh, whether he's able to keep them there is a different story. Uh, you know his level of competition hasn't been the greatest. He's only had four fights in the UFC. Marcos Hajirio de Lima easily guillotine choked him. That was probably one of the the saddest guillotine chokes I've ever seen outside of the Joseph Duffy one that we just saw this past weekend. Uh, Joachim Christensen, horrible fighter. Rear naked choked him within two minutes. Young Kutilaba, that was a fight where, you know, he got Kutilaba a couple, down a couple times, but Ian did a really good job of getting back to his feet. And anytime they were in the clinch position, like I said, up against the cage, Kutilabo was pretty much feeding him knees the entire time and it was really taking it out of Antigulov and I think that Paul Craig could be you know uh, capable of doing kind of the same thing but has a much better jiu-jitsu game so even if uh, Antigulov gets him down after Antigulov has started to gas we can see Paul Craig start to throw up submissions we've seen him submit guys like Magomed Ankalaev off his back Kennedy and Zetchuku and if you're talking about a guy that in Gadzimurad who just has horrible you know, cardio issues, we could see Paul Craig absolutely take advantage of that. And we've seen Craig go a hard three rounds before and uh, really put it on his opponents. But I don't think he's going to need three. I don't even think he's going to need two. I could see this fight just absolutely being done within the first round. Um, it, it's tough to know, though. I, I could see Antigulov go out there, get the takedown, and maybe get like a uh, an arm triangle choke or something like that, uh, or even a rear naked choke. But again, if he's going to be working hard to get that fin finish, and if he doesn't, Paul Craig, um, you know, he's going to make him work. Uh, even off of his back, Paul Craig is very, very offensive. So whether he's going to be throwing up arm bars, triangles, uh, even cutting up onto Kulov off of his back, he's going to be making him work. And, you know, I know that's Paul Craig's game. That's just how he fights. He's always a go, go, go fighter. And that's exactly what you need against a guy like Antigulov. So as long as you can stay away from getting ground and pounded, as long as you can stay away from getting submitted, Paul Craig could absolutely make Antigulov work here and then capitalize with some sort of finish. So uh, I just don't know which side is going to get the finish, but I do know it's going to happen under one and a half rounds. And I am uh, i don't mind the, the, the price tag that they're giving out there. It might get a little bit more juice closer to fight time, uh, but that minus 130 line is not that bad considering the style of both of these guys, but mainly the style of Antigulov. And 
he's kind of like my Nico Price. He's kind of like my Jillian Robertson. You know, if you you have your one ingredient of a guy that, uh, you know, the the under more than likely will hit because of this one guy. But as long as you add the the, the other side of the equation, which is the other fighter, and if they have a style to to bring out that possible under hitting even more. You know, I, I'm on board, so I think that Paul Craig brings is that perfect addition to the the ingredient that Antigulov brings into this fight uh, to result in a, a quick fight, um, not really a quick, like a four to five minute fight, uh, no longer than a round and a half in my opinion. So I, I'll pick I'll pick Craig to win by TKO or or even submission, um, uh, but uh, I think the under one and a half is probably where you guys should be looking at. Uh, so I'll take Paul Craig to win by late first round submission carlos barza versus marina rodriguez we got minus 180 on marina and plus 160 on carlos barza uh it seems like there's a lot of money starting to come in on marina rodriguez and i believe this yeah the the line initially opened at minus 185 got uh for marina got up to roughly about minus 150 and then started to come back down to minus 180 so you see uh you know as this fight week has begun uh, people are starting to believe in uh, that striking of Marina Rodriguez a little bit more. Um, so let's start off with Marina. 12-0-2, undefeated, technically. Um, she's had two draws, both in the UFC. Uh, one to Random Marcos, and the other was her most recent fight against Cynthia Calvillo. And the fight before the Calvillo fight, she fought Tisha Torres, which is a fight where I actually bet Tisha Torres, thinking that she would have a little bit more uh, ease getting uh Rodriguez down um in that fight though and as in subsequent fights for Tisha Torres you see that she leans mainly on her her striking and her speed and her in and out movement to really get the victory especially in her last fight against Brianna Van Buren and Marina Rodriguez you know long lengthy a bigger girl for this division uh you know has really good striking as well too uh she's one of the taller women in the strawweight division at 5'6 and her reach as well, I believe, is 65 inches. And it gives a lot of women uh, trouble in terms of, like, closing the distance. And, you know, especially when she gets the fighters into, like, clinch positions, her knees are very, very powerful and very strong. Um, you know, she she has shades of Yoni and Jacek in her in terms of her striking. She's a mean woman. Uh, you know, great knees, great kicks, uh, solid hands. Uh, but one thing that she always tends to 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 falter in and show flaws with is the grappling aspect you know we saw calvio have uh success time and time again in terms of getting rodriguez down and obviously uh in some of those situations rodriguez was able to find her way back to her feet but the fact that she finds herself you know in these clinch positions against the cage getting pushed up against the cage uh and some of these takedowns that don't even seem like the the, the hardest to get uh makes it harder for me to to really be a uh uh, you know, on the Rodriguez bandwagon in terms of wanting to better, especially at that minus 170, minus 180 mark that she's currently at. Obviously, in this matchup, she's going to have a huge striking advantage. Carla Esparza has made some improvements in her striking. Um, you know, in the last fight against Michelle Watterson, that was a fight where she didn't really need to lean on her grappling at, as much. And could it could also, in part, do with uh, Watterson's inactivity a little bit in that fight too. But Carlos Esparza, whenever, you know, they were trading in the pocket, she was starting her ground and she was landing some good shots. Um, her kicks are looking better too. Um, but we all know what her bread and butter is, and that's obviously her wrestling. And she would be absolutely, 
you know, dog shit crazy if she um, if she neglected her wrestling in this fight against Marina. Um, it's her clear path to victory. Um, and we've seen again, time and time again, where uh, the grappling has failed Rodriguez, even though she's technically undefeated. Um, you know, again, a lot of her flaws are when the opponent really starts to initiate the grappling. And Cynthia Calvillo is a much better jiu-jitsu player than she is an actual wrestler, uh, whereas I believe that Carla Esparza uh, is probably the best wrestler that Marina has fought in the UFC. Um, she's great at chain wrestling. Uh, she doesn't really just, she doesn't give up after her first attempt, you know, like uh, if she fails on that first attempt, she continues to drive, whether it's, you know, pushing her opponent up to the cage or chaining in another takedown attempt right after that. Um you know, she, she has really good timing in her takedowns. Um, she will have to make up with the fact or make up for the fact that she will be at a, a size disadvantage here. Uh, we got a solid five inch height advantage for Marina as well as a two inch reach advantage. But it, it's going to come down to, uh, you know, that that could play a positive factor for her too. Um, if you guys have been watching me for a while, something that I like to to, to insinuate a lot when it comes to, to wrestlers is the fighter that normally has their hips lower uh, on takedown of, uh, attempts are more often than not uh, successful with their takedowns. And obviously being the shorter woman here, she'll probably, it'll be easier for her to get down on the double legs um, or, or on any of these takedowns. But also the thing is, she's going to have to be very wary about the knees coming up from Marina. Obviously, Marina is going to be training her takedown defense like no tomorrow, but I still don't think that's going to be enough to uh, really, you know, deter Carla Esparza from completing those takedowns. My my concern here is obviously going to be Carla being able to keep Marina down. Um, I think she will, or at least long enough um, to at least secure uh, two rounds. Uh, at the current odds, you know, I, I do favor uh, Carla Esparza here. I think that uh, until we see Marina truly... Um, rectify and and fix her grappling issues and take down uh, flaw um, or take down defense. Uh, you know, I have to, to. You have to back the grappler here, especially Carla being one of the stronger grapplers in this division. Um, you know, it's it's kind of nuts to me to think that uh, Marina's line keeps getting steeper and steeper because people are just super believing in her in her striking and I do too I think her striking striking's great but uh, one thing that she's going to have to do and we saw it in the Alexa Grasso fight too Grasso um you know she really centered or or lowered her base of gravity in her striking attempts uh to kind of nullify the takedown attempts of Carla Esparza Carla was still able to get her down um but I think that if Marina did that that would kind of take away from her game which is kind of playing the longer uh fighter throwing her kicks out there and that's another thing you know you throw your kicks out there Carla's pretty good at catching those kicks and turning them into takedowns so we we sh it, it it would be in Marina's best interest to go about it in a boxing approach uh mainly using her hands uh you know throw a kick every now and then just to kind of throw Carla off but if she uses her hands a little bit more I think she'll be a little bit more successful um in the clinch exchanges I you know it, it will be a little uh, a bit of a sweat for Carla Esparza to get these takedowns because I do think that Marina's knees inside the clinch are very very dangerous but that you know bringing the knee up gives a uh, you know, gives the opportunity for a takedown for Carla. And I think she's going to be expecting those knees and kind of capitalize on the situations by getting the takedowns. Um, yeah, I, I think the, that Rodriguez has a bright future. It's kind of uh, surprising to me that she's 33 years old. But, um, you know, I think she has a solid 
um, future. And wow, Carlos Barr is a, a year younger than her, which is a little crazy too. Um, yeah, they're born in the same year. It just looks like uh, Marina Rodriguez is six year six months older. But either way, get, getting back to the fight itself, um, yeah, I, I tend to favor grapplers over strikers. And obviously, Marina has a high ceiling, but uh, I truly, this would be the, the best test for her in terms of like testing out how good her takedown defense has gotten because Carla Esparza is going to be relentless with those takedowns. And again, with her improvements in the striking realm, it, it will help her open up the striking game or, or, or the takedown game. But obviously, she's going to be completely outgunned on the feet by Marina. So she shouldn't, you know, go out there thinking that she's fucking Evander Holyfield or something and try to box off Marina Rodriguez's face to stay on the feet enough to to get Marina a little bit comfortable on the feet and then, you know, either catch a kick or uh, time a well, uh, well-placed takedown and and really initiate that grappling where I think that she'll have the a huge advantage. And man, her her submission defense has is, is gotten really good too. Uh, Alexa Grosso had in a really tight armbar and she was able to, to spin out of that very well. Um, yeah, I got to side with the dog here. You know, this fight should be lined a little bit closer. It should be, you know, you could favor Marina a little bit, maybe minus 120, minus 130. But I think with the grappling edge that Carla Esparza here, uh, that she has here, it, you know, you got to side with her. You got to go with the grappler here. Uh, again, high ceiling for Marina, but we still need to see some improvements from her uh, in the grappling aspect before I can really uh, back her, especially at that minus 180 line. So I'm going to go with Carlos Esparza here to win by decision. Uh, I looked at the props, and I don't know if it's just best fight odds that's messing up right now, but uh, at, at uh, five times, we got plus 160 for Carlos Esparza straight. And then plus 145 for Carla Esparza to win by decision. So there might be some fuckery going on with the best fight odds right now. But uh, yeah, I like Carla Esparza to win this fight. I don't think she wins it inside the distance. So if you want to get a little bit crazier, go ahead and bet that decision prop. But uh, I do like Carla to win this fight. Um, I'll say by decision. Uh, but a part of me kind of hopes that we see a very, uh, a much more improved Marina Rodriguez uh, in terms of her grappling and her takedown defense. Uh, but uh, with all the facts in front of me and going through the tape study, I got to go with Carlos Esparza here to win this fight by decision. Alexander Gustafsson versus Fabrizio Verdun. We got minus 350 on Gustafsson, who's making his heavyweight debut in the UFC. And we got plus 290 on Fabrizio Verdun. Um... Let's start off with Verdum. He's actually coming off a loss to, uh, a very surprising loss actually, to Alexio Olenek last time around. Um, it seems like the ring rust really got to him. Uh, that was his first fight in two years and two months. Um, you know, before that he had lost to Alexander Volkov and then he had this whole USADA issue. And if I'm not mistaken, he actually snitched on a couple fighters or or um, doctors or whatever it was because he managed to get his uh, sentence reduced drastically which allowed him to come back to the UFC. Um, I remember when he did get initially popped for it, he was asking the UFC to release him so that he could go to another promotion, maybe over somewhere in Russia or something, and fight over there. But uh, I don't know, maybe he worked out a deal with USADA or something, and usually that means that uh, you know he gives them information regarding uh, whether it's another fighter or, or another um, manufacturer or something like that. Uh, but either way, uh, he did his time, came back, fought Alexio Linick, came in as a huge favorite. And uh, even myself, I was very, very, um, you know, I was very interested in betting 
Fabrizio Verdum in that spot, but I just couldn't find myself to do it. You know, the mix the the layoff in with him fighting a guy like Alexio Linick, who, you know, as as old man as he is, uh, he still goes out there and gets the job done. And uh, that's exactly what he did against Fabrizio Verdum. It was a very close fight, split decision victory for Olenek, but uh, I thought he was very much deserving of that victory. Um, you know, we know what to expect with Verdum. Actually, kind of. You know, we expected him to go out there and beat Olenek, but he was not able to do that. But, you know, solid striker. Obviously, his base is jiu-jitsu. He wants to get you to the ground and try to submit you. Um, but I think he's going to have some trouble here with getting Gustafsson down. So this is Gustafsson's first fight up at uh, heavyweight, but he's always been one of the bigger light heavyweights. And I don't think that, uh, you know, I have seen some pictures of him, uh, you know, during fight week now where it looks like he's carrying good weight in a sense that he doesn't look like fucking Gian Vellante going to heavyweight. You know, he he is a bigger guy. He has a huge frame. So maybe his body is like pretty much used to being at this heavyweight um, frame and stature, uh, which can help him really acclimate to this division a little bit better. I think he's going to be, you know, if if he even gives us a, maybe like a half of what he used to show us at light heavyweight, he could definitely be in the top five of the heavyweight division. His striking is definitely up there with the best of them. Uh, his range management is really good too. It's going to be interesting to see how he deals with uh, fighting uh, guys that are roughly around the same size as him, if not bigger. Um, but uh, I think he'll definitely have the striking advantage here against Verdum. Uh, you know, good kicks, uh, solid takedown defense too. Um, with Verdum, we're seeing him just get it a little bit too overzealous with some of these positions. And even though Alexei Olenek is a very high-level jiu-jitsu guy himself, we saw for Verdum making some very uh, unfortunate mistakes. You know, there was one time, I believe it was in the second round against Olenek, where he took his back, but then... He literally, you know, dug in the hooks, but uh, he was just far too high on the back. And then eventually Olenek was able to just to shake him off. And, you know, think, knowing a guy like Verdum, you got you to gotta, you gotta think that he knew he was too high. So why continue to ride that position when you can just, you know, take one of the hooks out, readjust, and then get, back the, get the hooks back when you're in a little bit better of a position. But he just seemed just really out of it. Did not look like the killer that we're, we're used to seeing of Verdum. He's 42 years old, so he's getting up there in age. But with Gustafsson, he's a little bit of a... We just don't know really what to expect with him either. He's 33 years old, which is a bit of a surprise for me, considering that I thought that he was maybe around 36 or 37, especially with him recently uh, declaring retirement uh, after his... What was it? Yeah, it was after his uh, Anthony Smith fight. Even in that fight, he just didn't seem like he was all there. You know, that was his first fight after his uh, second loss to John Jones. Um, you know, he took six months to, to come back into the cage, fight Anthony Smith in front of his hometown crowd, and just laid an egg. Like, even from the, the, the beginning face-offs, like right after Bruce Buffer introduced both of them, you can see uh, when they did the, the face-off with the referee giving them instructions, like, he wouldn't even look at Anthony Smith. He was just kind of looking around. Anthony Smith was deadpan staring him in the eyes, and we just saw Gustafson just kind of, like, looking around. He just didn't seem like he was all there. It's kind of like he knew that he just didn't want to be there, and... and um, even knowing like with the loss that he was going to hang it up because he pretty much announced retirement right after that fight um but here he is back you know what i mean like um maybe he sees something at the heavyweight division uh stipe miocic might be on the way out daniel cormier might be on the way out you got you know francis and up there who might be a a tough matchup for gustafson 
But to be honest, if if we see again half of or even seventy percent of the Gustafson that we saw in that heavyweight during his peak days at heavyweight, now I might even take Gustafson over Francis Ngannou. I mean, he's the much better striker. He holds his range very well, and if he's able to get out of that first round, he could give Francis Ngannou hell from the from distance. Uh, but with that said, he's fighting Verdum here. I, I I just have too many questions about what type of Gustafson we're going to see. Um, you know, this could be uh, the the best division for him too. You know, I think that he could have a lot of success here. Um, his striking is great. Takedown defense is great. His takedowns are great too if he ever wants to to take his opponents down. I'm not sure if he wants to do that against a high-level jiu-jitsu guy with Verdum here, no matter how shitty Verdum has looked. But uh, with that said, minus 350 on Gustafsson, I'm going to pass on that. Again, too many question marks. Um, he is the better fighter. We don't know what the retirement or half-retirement treated him like. Um you know, it's going to be a solid year since he's been in the cage. The one line, actually, that I did like... Had to get that yawn out. I apologize. Um, the under 2.5, minus 125-ish. Not that bad of a line. You know, I could see either outcome here where we see like a, a rejuvenated Gustafson that wants to go out there and just take Verdum out. Or Verdum somehow gets Gustafson down. He pulls off some sort of submission. But the other side of it, I could also see, you know, Gustafson playing it safe, staying on the outside with his kicks. Um, you know, he did a lot of good work. As bad as he looked in the Anthony Smith fight, he still did decent work with his leg kicks. We could see that here against Verdum, maybe slow him down a little bit and then really start to open up his hands. But uh, yeah, all in all, this fight's just a pass for me. Like, um, the only one that I'm attracted to is the under two and a half. But even that, I just feel like it's a little bit sketchy. We don't know what we're going to get from either guy. Um, yeah, this is a stay away fight. But for the for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to go with Gustafson by second round TKO. I think he does have a little bit more in the tank than Verdum does. And I'm surprised that Verdum is actually coming back into the cage this quickly after that loss to, um, to Olenek. I believe that was in May. Uh, was it May or June? Either way, it was UFC 249 the night that uh, Justin Gaethje beat Tony Ferguson. But either way, I like Gustafson here. Not enough to parlay him or bet him, to be honest. But uh, yeah, I think he gets it done within the second round. And uh, who knows what's going to happen for Verdum. But I hope we see a really good Gustafson because the heavyweight division definitely needs some help once Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic call it a career. And Gustafson could be that next guy. So once again, Alexander Gustafson to win this fight by second round. TKO. Shogun Hua versus Rogerio Nogueira 3. Surprisingly enough, the UFC has decided to match these guys up once again. This is going to be their third fight, like I said. Uh, Shogun came away with the victory in both of the first fights, one of them happening in Pride, probably one of the greatest fights of all time, uh, or at least, you know, top 10, top 20 greatest fights of all time. And then the last time around, uh, Shogun won at UFC 190 uh, in a fight where early on he was in a little bit of trouble. Um, it was weird because like the combination that Nogueira landed on him didn't seem to land the hardest, but it just landed like the second shot seemed to land like right on the top of the head. So it may have, you know, thrown off Shogun's equilibrium a little bit. Um, Shogun was able to recover from that, uh, you know, ride out the rest of the round pretty much in the clinch position. Uh, and then in the second and third round, he really put it on Noguera in terms of just taking him down, clinching up against him, uh, really stealing the rounds from him uh, so that Noguera wasn't able to do much. Um, I kind of expect the same fight uh, this third time around. And I'm kind of surprised that they actually lined it 
the total at uh, one and a half compared to the you know two and a half considering both of their fights have gone to a decision um you know at this point in their career neither of them have crazy knockout power um their chins have obviously been very much tested by the young up-and-comers that they're fighting but for some reason shogun's chin you know it seemed shot uh way back in the day you know way back in 2012 2013 but here we are in 2020 uh he's riding a, a crazy streak right now i think his only loss in the last little bit was anthony smith um so since the Ovin same pru loss he's four one and one which is insane and that osp loss was back in 2014 so since 2015 shogun is five four one and one with wins over guys like noguera he started this streak with noguera uh split decision over Corey anderson finished Jan Vellante in the third round obviously got starched by anthony smith pretty quickly and then uh finishes tyson pedro in the last round and then gets a uh, a split draw against Paul Craig back in November uh, of 2019. Uh, but yeah, you know they're they're both still slow. You know they're they they don't have the craziest pop on their shots. Um, you know Shogun since his t- initial title run, he's really started to take up the. Um, the, the game plan of more of a, a, a clinch-heavy approach. He tries to overpower his opponents a little bit more, you know, really sticks with the knees uh, to the thigh. Um, you know, it doesn't really seem like he goes out there to try and, like, seek a finish or seek a brawl as much anymore. And that plays out for him. It, you know, again, this, this run that he's on is insane. Um you know, Norguera has has had a little bit of a tougher of a run. Last time around, got stopped by Ryan Spann pretty easily. Uh, the fight before that goes out there as a pretty hefty underdog against uh, Sam Alvey, plus 300 underdog, and knocks him out in the second round. Uh, a lot of people thought that Sam Alvey was going to go in there and just absolutely starch him in that first round. That was not the case. Um, before that, lost to Ryan Bader. So it's obvious that uh, Noguera just has not been that busy uh, that often, considering that Ryan Beer has had you know a, a handful of fights over at Bellator now. Um, but yeah, since 2016, he's only had three fights, which is insane. Um, yeah, I, I expect this to be a, a sloppy fight. Uh, again, I'm not really sure why they made this fight, other than the fact that both guys are old. Both guys are relatively at the same skill level. You know, it, it makes no sense. Again, there's they're legends as well too, so maybe that's uh, their drawing power is what they're kind of leaning on here. Uh, even though we're getting like a really watered down version of of both of them. Um, yeah, no, Gara, forty four years old. Shogun, I believe, is is close to his forties, thirty eight, so close enough. But yeah, I expect this fight to to be a lot of like both of them being super tentative, maybe clinching up a lot, maybe a couple of takedowns here and there. But I don't expect an all-out war or anything like that, which is why I'm very comfortable with the the over one and a half, which is roughly around minus 125. I think there's a solid amount of value there, as I don't think either guy is going to be going berserk mode or anything like that to go out there and get a finish. Um, yeah, I like uh, in terms of which side I'm going with. I, I gotta go with no uh, Shogun. You know, being six years younger, uh, maybe in maybe not in fight years. Obviously, Nogueira has had a little bit more rest than Shogun over the past several years as well too. But um, 
you know, his cardio is just not the greatest. Shogun, we've seen he's still in there with the younger guys, you know, going to full three rounds, um, you know, even finishing a couple guys late in the third round. So I, you, you got to give the, the the edge to Shogun here. Uh, but I don't feel comfortable playing Shogun even at that minus 185-ish, minus 190 range that he's currently at. He should win this fight, and I think he's going to win by decision or maybe third round stoppage. But I definitely expect this fight to go over the one and a half. Uh, again, still mystified that they got this lined at one and a half and not two and a half um but i think it's more so with noguera you know being finished and finishing pretty early the last couple fights but this is a different stylistic matchup compared to his last uh opponents uh but yeah i like shogun to win this fight by decision or even third round stoppage um and i again fully expect this fight to go over one and a half rounds time for the main event we got robert the reaper whitaker coming in against darren till uh, minus 120 currently on Robert Whitaker, plus 100 for Darren Till. This fight actually opened at minus 175 for Robert Whitaker, and the line has slowly and gradually uh, gotten to a pick'em. It seems like it's slowly starting to part towards the the Robert Whitaker side, and uh, I believe rightfully so. So this is actually the first fight for Robert Whitaker since his fight against Israel Adesanya. He was scheduled to fight Jared Cannonier back in March. That fight fell through for uh, undisclosed reasons. Um, you know, there are a lot of like theories out there in terms of what was going on with Robert Whitaker. Uh, Dana even came out with something saying that, you know, uh, I understand that Whitaker pulled out of this fight and he's the, one of the greatest human beings, most selfless human beings I've ever heard. Uh, but no story really came out exactly what happened with Robert Whitaker. The only thing that came out near, uh, you know, and again, I believe somebody shot this down, but it was uh, something to do with Robert Whitaker having to donate bone marrow or something for one of his uh, children. No confirmation there. I'm not sure if he even like... Uh, you know addressed it or anything like that but uh you know at least here he is again um you know trying to get back to that title um and this is a solid fight against darren till who's coming off a solid victory over calvin gaslam uh both guys who you know had most recently fought for a title so it's it's a good way for darren till to you know this will be a second fight at middleweight it's a good way for him to really assert himself within that top five, uh, you know, beating Kelvin Gaston last time around. And now if he beats Robert Whitaker, he's pretty much next in line for a title shot. We know that Israel Adesanya is supposed to be fighting Paulo Costa um, later this year. I believe September-ish, UFC 252 or 253 is roughly what it's scheduled for. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get that figured out. And then I believe the winner of this fight will probably be next. I'm not 100% sure if Whitaker will have to fight at least one more person. But uh, I think his uh, run as middleweight champion was decisive enough for him to actually, you know, um, uh, to stake claim to another title shot even after just one win. Um, yeah, this, stylistically, this is a great fight. Uh, you know, on first thought, you got to think that, yeah, the pick'em line is probably correct. But when you really start to break it down in terms of their striking techniques and, and uh, you know, the damage that Robert Whitaker is able to do with his combinations and how slick he is with his movement and the in-and-out uh, nature of, you know, kind of hitting and not getting hit. And obviously, he's not like a Floyd Mayweather when it comes to that, but he's pretty good at his movement and, and uh, getting out of big shots. He was rocked by uh, UR Romero. Uh, obviously, Israel Adesanya finished him as well, too. But if you watch those fights, you know, 
especially the Adesanya fight. Adesanya is just another level of striker. There is no other fighter in the UFC that has the type of striking that Adesanya does. And even with the frame that he has, he moves so well. He he covers distance well. He holds his range pretty well too. But Robert Whitaker was able to land a lot of good shots on Adesanya within that for you know within the eight minutes as as long as that fight actually went. Um, Darren Till. His last fight against Kevin Gaslam, we saw him kind of take a, a, a lot safer of an approach. You know, he wasn't really uh, going out there and gunslinging or anything like that. He was just waiting for his proper opportunities, waiting for the distance to be correct, land a couple shots, get in and out, and not really take too much from Kevin Gaslam on the on the on the return. We know that Darren Till, you know, obviously had a had a rough stretch uh, at a certain point. So he had that title shot against Tyron Woodley in September of 2018. Lost that fight. Came back, faced Jorge Masvidal. That was the night that Masvidal's stardom just went through the roof. Um, and then he came back and fought uh, Kelvin Gastelum roughly eight months after that. <sighs> Watching the Masvidal fight, it, it, I believe technically Masvidal is a better striker than Robert Whitaker. But the way that he was able to uh, close distance, you know, most of uh, Masvidal's shots were from like a, a switch stance position. So he would like switch stance with his first strike and then cover that distance and then come over with the power hand. I think Robert Whitaker does that pretty well too. And he's slightly bigger than Masvidal. I, 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 you know what? I actually want to confirm that uh, the metrics, we got six foot, 73 and a half inch reach for Robert Whitaker. And we got... Uh, 5'11", 73 inch reach for Masvidal so slightly bigger but Whitaker just holds that weight pretty well and um, and that size really well too I think that's kind of gonna catch Darren Till off off guard and um, I didn't really see anything from that Kelvin Gaston fight that leads me to believe that Darren Till is a rejuvenated fighter or he's just that much better at metal weight now now that he's not having to suck himself dry getting down to 170 um, I still think that Robert Whitaker is the better overall striker. Darren Till could possibly have some, uh, you know, um, uh, power advantage here, but I could also see Robert Whitaker, Robert Whitaker going out there and knocking Darren Till out too. Um, you know, the the one thing that still rubs me the wrong way about uh, Till is his fight against Tyron Woodley, where he threw pretty much no shots in that first round, and then in the second round, one of his first shots that he throws is a lead uppercut, which Tyron Woodley easily, you know, counters with an overhand right, drops and gets the fight to the ground, and we all know what happens after that. I can see him just making those types of mistakes against a guy like Robert Whitaker, and he's going to pay dearly for it. Like, I... I, I Darren Till is a, maybe a top five fighter, but when he, but when he fights uh, more skilled strikers like a Robert Whitaker or an Israel Adesanya, he's going to have a lot of issues. Um, I think this line is, uh, you know, close is lined at the uh, at what it's at because of the fact that he beat Calvin Gastelum last time around. He came in as a plus one seventy five dog against Gastelum, and uh, you know he did go out there and get the victory. But uh, again, it didn't show me anything that's like okay, Darren Till is a killer at middleweight, but Robert Whitaker is just a very very tough stylistic matchup for him. Just strikes so much better. Um, I believe he's uh, he's faster too. Uh, he'll be able to cover the range a lot better. Um, He's very sneaky as well with uh, when he brings up his high kicks, which might be able to catch Darren Till off guard. You know, he throws it almost like it, it caught Adesanya a couple times too, which is very surprising. You know, Adesanya, whenever it hit, he always like nodded his head or like shook his finger saying no. But more often than not, uh, you guys know that whenever a fighter does that, that that landed and it was good enough. So I could definitely see something like that catching Darren Till. Um, 
I think it's going to be on the blitzes here where Robert Whitaker will have the most success. He's just going to have to be very worrisome about the counters coming back his way. But I think that as long as his chin is good, I don't believe it's completely shot, even though that Israel Adesanya knocked him out pretty bad last time around. Adesanya is just such a precision striker, so much better than Naranto that I can believe that, um, you know, Whitaker's uh, chin is not shot. It's not gone. We need to... to pump our brakes on that narrative i think that robert whitaker is still totally in this game i think this is a very winnable fight for him and if you give me pick em odds you kind of got to go a robert whitaker here you know i i give him at least a, a 60 to 65 percent chance to winning this fight and based on the implied odds or the implied odds uh you know that leaves some value on whitaker here so i do like whitaker to win this fight I think he's actually even going to knock out Darren Till probably in the third or fourth round once he really starts to get comfortable and really gets that rust off of him. He did fight, uh, when was that Adesanya fight? I feel like it was October. Yeah, October 5th. So he's been off for, what is that, nine-ish months so far. Um, once he really gets in there and you know shakes off the cobwebs a bit, I think that uh, he'll start to get back into his groove and it's really going to throw Darren Till for a little bit of a loop. I don't think that Till will be able to be as you know cautious and and strategic per se as he was as the Kelvin Gaslam fight because I think Robert Whitaker does a lot better uh work with combinations and not just the one and done that Kelvin Gaslam is kind of uh like you know he Kelvin Gaslam just mainly throws like uh, I believe it's left hooks and right straights or the the opposite I'm trying to remember off the top of my head but uh you know he's mainly a two combination striker whereas Robert Whitaker is able to tie together way more combinations which will throw off Darren Till on that third or fourth shot or that third or fourth strike uh which should catch Darren Till so I'm going with the the third round finish for Robert Whitaker I think we see him go back to his prime self this will be a solid win for him and hopefully another uh chance for him to to get back to a title shot and and pro- possibly reclaim what is his i think adesanya will always have his number uh but uh, this should be a solid victory for robert whitaker um and yeah i'll go with whitaker with the third round stoppage here and those are the breakdowns hope you guys enjoyed them uh solid card all around 15 fights took me a long time to get this shit together but uh, i'm already looking forward to the next event i'm going to have a couple breakdowns coming out on friday uh for those of you on the patreon you guys will start getting those breakdowns uh asap uh and then i hope to release the next podcast by wednesday i'm hoping at the latest possibly tuesday but i can't promise anything all right um appreciate you guys checking out the episode again check out the patreon um check out the tape index as you guys already know a very helpful tool for anybody that likes to do the research of their own i got all the links in the description below so make sure you guys check that out and then lastly just hit subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet please hit subscribe i'm trying to hit that 1000 mark before the end of the summer and uh, i'm getting close there you know, I mean, as I drop these podcasts, I I develop more and more subscribers and, and it's very, very helpful. I greatly appreciate it. And if I've helped you at all in the past with making any type of money, just hit subscribe. That's all I ask. All right. Um, that's it for this episode. I'll see you guys next week for uh, UFC Vegas something. I don't even know what the hashtag is now. They're done with Fight Island, or at least for now, they're going back to Vegas for August 1st, which is an event headlined by Edmund Shabazian versus Derek Brunson, which should be a great fight, and I can't wait to break down that fight for you guys. Um, But yeah, see you guys next week. Good luck on your bets, and uh, gamble responsibly. (laughs) 